All right, today we are returning to our survey of Exodus. Our attention last week was particularly uh, on the descriptions that we have in this book of the people of God and a great emphasis upon the transformation uh, that grace made in the lives of these people. And the last thing that we were noting particularly was the fact that God had turned these people, transformed these people from slaves in Egypt in the bondage there of servitude to the harsh and cruel and wicked Egyptians, now to the servitude of the Lord Himself. They are special servants. And we emphasized and noted some of the key texts last week that... Uh, highlighted, underscored uh, the fact that God's people now are to be regarded and are to so exercise themselves as the servants of the Lord. Now, one of the key manifestations of that service uh, is in our worship of the Lord. And Exodus is a great book of worship. And particularly, uh, as we uh, come to see the instructions Uh, both in terms of the building and then uh, in the uh, exercise of the people around the tabernacle. So I want to begin uh, today saying a few things about the tabernacle and the religious service that was associated uh, with the tabernacle economy and emphasizing here, as the Lord does in this book, that all of this tabernacle worship was designated as the service Uh, under the Lord. Uh, And we emphasize that here. How often have we heard that particular emphasis? Uh, That worship is service that is to be rendered unto the Lord. It is not directed to self, although self is going to be engaged in that worship. It is never passive. Uh, And I think we'll see that certainly as we look at this uh, this whole circumstance that the worship uh, of God is never passive. It is not a spectator uh, sport, uh, but all of those involved, no matter what their particular place and part in that worship is, uh, are to be active participants. It is a service unto the Lord. Now, uh, if you've ever read Exodus, and I certainly trust that you have, uh, you uh, have well noted the great emphasis in the latter part of the book upon the instructions concerning the tabernacle. Now, I hope we can keep this within the realm uh, of sanity. Is something ringing or is that just my ears? Something ringing? Something is ringing in my ears right now. I'm telling you what. Uh, oh, well. Uh, we'll try to discover what that problem is. It is just ringing right now. I, answer the phone, someone, please. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I say, as you've read the book uh, of Exodus, there is a great deal of information here. Uh, and it's easy to get bogged down. Uh, It's easy to get bogged down, and I don't know how many uh, things that I have read in my relatively short life uh, about the tabernacle and the the extremes uh, to which people go uh, in in trying to see the significance of this, that, uh, of of the tabernacle. Now, there needs to be a balance, all right? Typology, we've talked about that uh, before uh, in here, and I've given you some of my particular views and notions on what 
uh, biblical typology is all about. In fact, the chapter that I'm writing uh, now deals with uh, this whole issue of typology and setting down some sensible guidelines uh, for recognizing and using and interpreting types uh, in the Old Testament. And certainly the tabernacle is a great type uh, of uh, redemption, a great type ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're going to see. Uh, but at the same time, I'm saying we want to, we want to be sane about this. Uh, there were certain things about the tabernacle were there just to keep the tent from blowing over in the wilderness. Uh, and I, I, I don't necessarily, and it is not a particular spiritual virtue, uh, to try to find some tit-for-tat spiritual correspondence uh, that this thread that intertwines with this thread is a symbol and a type of... No, sometimes that's just how you made cloth. Uh, and we, we don't want to go, uh, go beyond that. I don't regard it as a spiritual virtue. All right? uh, it, may be, it, it may be keen imagination, uh, but we want to we focus in typology upon the emphasis that is placed upon uh, that particular uh, item, as it were, in the context itself. And I think we can uh, set, this, uh, set this down as we go through very generally. But I say it's easy to get bogged down. Uh, and, and as you read the scripture of Exodus, it seems as though the scripture itself gets bogged down uh, in some of the details about the Exodus or, or about the tabernacle. Uh, the Lord gives various instructions and very detailed instructions as to what uh, is to be gathered for the building of the tabernacle. Uh, various detailed instructions as to how then to put this whole thing together. Very detailed instructions. Uh, and we, we have a little... Uh, reprieve here from that context and then we're right back at it and we have now the actual erection uh, of the tabernacle and the repetition of those same details uh, as they why all of that well, it's not there just uh, for, for no reason but I say it's easy to get uh, bogged down uh, and, and I hope we can at least get the salient uh, the points of this and see the great beauty of what God was uh, instructing uh, the people. Now let me put this in the context of what we see in this Mosaic period. I, I, I dare say that one of the most outstanding, uh, the most outstanding features of this, what we tend to refer to as the Mosaic Covenant. I'm not particularly happy uh, with that expression, but this covenant that God renews uh, with the nation uh, during this period of Moses's leadership. Uh, renewed here at Sinai, and we talked a little bit about that last time. Uh, I, I think one of the most salient uh, features of this mosaic economy, this mosaic covenant, uh, is the lessons and the focus that is upon the scheme of worship and the work of the Messiah. If you can recall back some of our earlier discussions uh, in, in terms of the covenant development, uh, in the Old Testament. And I certainly emphasize that this concept of the covenant, this ultimately promise that God gives to man uh, to reverse the curse, beginning in Genesis 3.15, here is the seed of the woman. Uh, and you develop this uh, right consistently all the way through the book of Genesis, through the entirety of the Old Testament. Everything is uh, focusing upon the coming of that seed. This is the essence of that covenant promise. Uh, and if you don't see that uh, in terms of the covenant with Adam, 
If you don't see that in terms of the covenant with Moses, if you don't see that in terms of the covenant of Abraham, if you don't see that in terms of the covenant with David, uh, you're missing the whole point. All right, all of this is intricately tied together in the development of that seed. Now, what uh, I, I think is remarkable when I look at that uh, Adamic covenant, if you want to call it that, as I look at that Noachian covenant, as I look at that Abrahamic covenant, as I look at that Davidic covenant, the primary focus is upon the identity of that coming seed. Who is the reverser of the curse going to be? Uh, he's going to be the seed of the woman. He is going to be God-man. He's now going to be the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And the focus, I say, is particularly upon the identity of this coming seed. So that when Christ comes uh, and we start reading the gospel narratives, uh, it's not without significance, you know, uh, that Matthew begins with that genealogy, that Luke has uh, that very detailed genealogy. It's not there just to take up space. There is the proof and the evidence uh, that Jesus of Nazareth is that seed of the woman, that seed of Abraham, and right on down. Uh, and it becomes the verification uh, that through every moment in history, God has been fulfilling his word, uh, that there is going to be that seed that reverses the curse. Now, I'm saying that to say this, when I come to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, I, I really don't learn a great deal more about who the Messiah is going to be. Uh, I, I don't learn really a great deal more concerning his lineage uh, in, in far as the uh, ancestry uh, of the Christ is concerned. But what does happen in the Mosaic Covenant uh, is now a uh, focus upon the work of the Messiah. What is the Messiah going to do? Here's who he is. We know by the time we come to Moses that the Redeemer, that the reverser of the curse is going to be God-man. Uh, we know that he is uh, going to be a Semite. We know that he is going to be in the family, uh, the nation of Abraham. We know that he is going to be of the tribe of Judah. By the time we come uh, to uh, the book of Exodus and the time that Moses now is preaching this word to people, we know that much. They knew that much uh, about the uh, identity of this coming Redeemer. Uh, but now in the Mosaic Covenant, we are going to have, if you will, a theological timeout, I often refer to it as. Here's a theological timeout. Uh, as now we have detailed explanations uh, and detailed illustrations, detailed analogies of what the work of the Messiah is going to be. How is he going to reverse the curse? And we have uh, particularly associated with this Mosaic Covenant is the definition of these animal sacrifices. We have all of this ritual that was centered around uh, this tabernacle uh, that was erected in the wilderness. Now, there were sacrifices, there were animal sacrifices going all the way back that God had used, that God had defined, but it's not really until we come to the Mosaic economy that the Lord pauses now, as it were, and gives the significance uh, and the formal, uh, the formal introduction, explanation of all of these animal sacrifices and the laws of cleanness and uncleanness, all of this ceremonial stuff, all, right, all of this ceremonial stuff uh, that ultimately, and this is what I want us to see here, that all of this ceremonial stuff that in one way or another was a divinely used analogy, an illustration, 
of what the Lord Jesus Christ, of what the Messiah was going to do. Uh, object lessons. All right, they're object lessons. Uh, these are symbols. They are object lessons. That is, they're conveying spiritual truths to these people. And then they are typical, and, and by that I simply mean they're picture prophecies. That's how I'm going to define a type for you here. A type, uh, don't, don't make it more mysterious and uh, esoteric than it is. Types were there to clarify. All right? I, 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 I read of what some people, and hear what some people are doing with typology, and it's anything but clarifying. Right? Uh, it's extremely confusing. And, and how many times, all right? Let, let's be honest, right? how many times uh, ha, have you read something or have you heard something uh, that someone says concerning, oh, this, this is typical of Christ. All right, you find Christ in every page of the Old Testament, right? You've heard that one. Uh, and and here is, uh, here is, this is a type of Christ. And, and, and you see this beautiful stuff and your heart is blessed. And very often my heart is blessed. But I say to myself, man, I've read that a hundred times and I don't see it. You know, I don't see it. So how is it that someone, whoever can see something so glorious about Christ in something that I've read a hundred times and have never seen it? You see, uh, do, do I just chalk that up to my spiritual immaturity? Uh, maybe. All right. That, that could be part of it. Uh, do, do, do I just chalk that up to that particular person's great and high degree of spiritual acumen? All right. And, and we uh, just go, you know, I, how, what, what a man you are. Well, a lot of times that, that may be. All right. That may be. But I'm suggesting to you that a lot of times uh, the reason that you and I don't see it because it's not there. All right. Just because I have the ability to see something nifty doesn't mean that's what God intended to be seen. All right. Uh, I have to emphasize this. All right. Just because you see it, just because it reminds you of something nifty or spiritual or even about doesn't mean that's there. All right. We are not concerned. Bottom line, I really am not concerned about what you think you see. All right. What did God intend me to see? And the purpose of types is not to confuse, but to clarify. All right. And, and so if I have to exercise some kind of mysticism, as it were, and I'm not opposed to that at times, if we define that properly. See, uh, but if I just squeeze my eyes tight, you know, and, and what, what do I see here to try to rescue that? That's not that's not the game that I want to play here. All right. God gave object lessons and he gave types to clarify truth that was already established. You want to be very careful uh, in formulating doctrine, as it were, uh, from typology. Typology is an illustration. It is a divinely intended illustration of a truth. Uh, it, it is not that which God just threw out and said, I'll figure this out on your own. No, no, no. It's an analogy of something. And if it is analogy of something, then whatever it is analogous to must be clear, right? Uh, so, bottom line, I don't want to. I don't want to just. It, it is not a spiritual thing for me here to go tit for tat for every thread in the tabernacle and say, "Oh, this, this is a picture in a prophecy of Christ." Uh, now, there are going to be a lot of details, but at the same time, I'm saying I want to be very, very careful, and we get into this. Uh, identification of the types and whatever when we look at these uh, sacrifices and aspects of the tabernacle generally. Uh, but it doesn't take, all right, and here, it doesn't take a great deal of spiritual acumen uh, to, to recognize the main points of these uh, tabernacle lessons. 
and these sacrifice lessons if we keep in mind what it is that we're trying to accomplish. We always want to look uh, at... The, can I use these terms? I don't know. But I, I need to define, I guess, some terms before we actually get started in this analysis. Uh, if I talk about the antitype, all right, we talk about types and we talk about antitypes. That's the jargon that we use here. A type and an antitype. We, uh, a type is the thing that I'm looking at. That's the thing in the historical context uh, that we are looking at, uh, that Israel, that whoever could look at, they could see. Uh, it was something real. Uh, it was the object lesson. All right? It was the object lesson, if you will. The antitype is the uh, ultimate, uh, the ultimate uh, fulfillment. If I call a type a picture prophecy, uh, the antitype is the ultimate fulfillment then of that prophecy. So when I look then at these types, my particular concern and primary concern is not to try to develop uh, and uh, explain all the mechanics of the type. No, this is teaching me something about the antitype. I want the antitype, I want the ultimate reality to be my primary focus. And that is what's going to give definition to the uh, to the historical thing that God is using here. Am I being clear? Uh, I, I'm being clear here. I think I'm being clear. Uh, this is important. Uh, let, let me even back up even one step further and, and give you the definition of, of what a type in it, f f from the, uh, just the just the word itself. Uh, the word type is, is a Greek word. Or it's a Greek word. Uh, and it literally means... Uh, and, and this is apart from any theological, hermeneutic, or whatever else, a type is an impress of something. All right? It means an impress, uh, an impression of something. And the word antitype refers to the instrument that is used to make that impression. All right, you with me? The word type simply means an impression, and the antitype is the instrument that is used to make that impression. All right, so... Uh, you know, here, here's a, uh, a seal that a king would have, right? And he would take his ring and he would put that ring in that little bit of wax and it would make a type, all right? It would make a type. It makes an impression. It makes an impression. But what was the reality? The reality is not the impression, all right? The reality, the primary thing, is the instrument that was used, if you will, to make the, to make the impression. So the primary... The, the primary deal is in the antitype, not the type. It is the antitype, and this is important now, it is the antitype that gives the definition to the type. You with me? Antitype gives the definition to the type. I don't look at the type then to try to define what the antitype is. We, we, I, I often put it this way. Uh, we, we look at all of these animal sacrifices and this, that, and the other, and they are types of Christ. They are types of Christ. But I do not want to explain Christ in terms of animal sacrifice. Bottom line, I want to explain the animal sacrifices, interpret the animal sacrifices in the light of Christ. Right? It's, uh, I, I think, uh, who, who, who said this? I don't, I don't remember who said this, but I think it was a good, good statement. Uh, I heard somebody say it once, maybe it was Bonar. Uh, that it is, it is not, if, if it was Bonar, you understand I didn't hear him say it. <laughs> I, I read it uh, someplace uh, that we, we don't interpret we don't interpret Calvary in the right in the light of Leviticus. Uh, 
but you interpret Leviticus in the light of Calvary. Right? That's expressing what we mean by antitype-type relation. It is the type, the antitype that gives significance to the type that we're looking at. All right, so as we look then at this tabernacle uh, situation and all of the rigmarole and ritual that was going to become associated with this tabernacle economy, uh, it's going to be an object lesson. An object lesson that points to the reality, but it, it is not the reality. It is not the reality. It is a picture of the reality. Uh, and if I miss the reality, I misinterpret everything that it's there. And if Israel misinterpreted, if all Israel got out of this was the object lesson, they misinterpreted. All right. This is not just something that now I have because I have the New Testament that I can go back and see this. No, no, no. Israel could see it. Those that had faith. Those that had faith knew the difference between the object lesson and the reality. And I submit to you one of the biggest mistakes in the modern use, modern use of the Old Testament scripture is to read all of that stuff and say, ah, uh, that, Israel focused on, on, on the object lesson. See, and so, therefore, in the Old Testament, they were saved with goats and bulls and sheep and whatever else. Now we're saved. No, no, no. That reflects a misunderstanding. God did not give. God did not give the object lesson to confuse truth, but to clarify the truth, to illustrate the truth. It was a means of illustration. So the tabernacle was a means that God gave to that generation, and we can learn the same lessons as we're going to see. It became a means of illustrating the truth. But it was not the truth. All right? It was not the truth. It was an illustration of the truth, if that makes sense. All right? So I can't find the ultimate uh, reality of how God deals with men and how God saves men uh, in terms of these Old Testament sacrifices. But God, uh, in His goodness, is revealing truth, illustrating truth, in ways that were very easy. Uh, for man to understand. God wanted to make sure that these people understood what vicarious atonement meant. He wanted them to make sure that they understood that they could not save themselves, that salvation had to come from someplace outside of themselves. Uh, but God is good. All right? God is good. And God, knowing, uh, knowing our frame and our, our innate ignorance, you see, did not just throw down... Uh, vocabulary cards with the manna day by day in the wilderness. All right? they, they, they didn't pick up their supply of manna for that day in a vocabulary card and said, vicarious atonement. All right, now learn that one. Uh, propitiation. All right, learn that one. Uh, no, he didn't just throw down a lot of theological jargon. All right? uh, now, those truths are there. But he gave them pictures. He gave them illustrations. Uh, in their infancy, in man's theological infancy, if you will, and in man's theological adolescence, if you will, to teach them in ways that were very graphically and very vividly to be understood. Uh, but uh, to confuse the object lesson with the reality uh, was, was great folly. Was great folly. Uh, and, and we understand that, and I've used this illustration before. We've got, a Sunday, we've got Sunday school class stuff going down, uh, down below us here. All right? uh, and those teachers down there are teaching those little children, your children, some of, the same Bible that I am teaching you people. All right? The same Bible that I'm teaching you people. 
same, same truth. But I, I don't think they are doing it the same way. All right? They are not speaking to those kids the same way I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to a bunch of mature people. You see, I'm speaking to people with all of this intellectual maturity and background and whatever else, and it's such a pleasure to me to talk to you people. You see. Uh, but if, if they were to, down there, talk to those two-year-olds and four-year-olds and eight-year-olds the way I'm talking to you, you know, it's not going to make a bit of sense. So there's flannel graph stuff going down down there. They've got flannel graph, you see. Uh, they, they, they've got other stuff. That, and, and that's good. That's good. Uh, I, I don't have to use visual aids for you people. I don't have to have a little thing over there, you know, with, with putting little stuff on there to oh, visualize because you don't have any attention span. I always think that's an insult. Uh, any teacher that has to always put... Well, I won't get into that. I never had an education course, so I speak this way. Uh, you, you listen, all right? You, and, and you understand. Well, this is what God was doing. If you can think of it in those terms, this is exactly what God was doing. When he was making this truth clear, he gave object lessons to illustrate the truth and not just start throwing all of this theological jargon, but he wanted them to know the theological truth. As they down there want them to know the theological truth. But it's a different way of expressing those notions. All right, having said all of that, here's the tabernacle. What is the purpose of the tabernacle? Uh, why is it that God set up this tent in the wilderness uh, and established such a sophisticated uh, and seemingly complex uh, system of worship uh, for these people? All right, I, I would suggest that there are three reasons. There are three reasons, very obvious reasons, why the tabernacle in the wilderness? First of all, to develop with these people that God might develop with these people the covenant fellowship between him and his people. He delivered them. We talked in, in these earlier weeks now about the nature of the relationship that existed between God and these people. You are my children. I am your God. You are my people. You are my servants. You are my firstborn. You are special. Well, what does all of that, what are the implications of that? How is it that these special people now enjoy and experience that fellowship and that communion with God? Well, the whole stuff about the tabernacle was going to be a means whereby God was teaching these people what it meant to have covenant fellowship with Him. It's a key purpose. Second key purpose was to teach these people something of the holiness of God. To teach these people something of the holiness of God. Yes, God was entering into a covenant relationship. God was entering into a very intimate relationship with these people, with His people. But God is a holy God. God is a holy God. Uh, and fellowship with God, uh, therefore, is based upon some very rigid and strict requirements. Uh, the psalmist develops this. Who is it that can ascend up to the holy hill? He, said, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. If there is to be fellowship with God, if there is to be the enjoyment of communion with God, then there must be personal purity, there must be personal holiness. And there's going to be a bunch of stuff surrounding this whole 
tabernacle and worship economy that is emphasizing the necessity of purity uh, and uh, holiness of life if there is to be any enjoyment of fellowship uh, with God. Even the very structure of the tabernacle. We'll talk about this in, in broad detail. Here, here's the tabernacle, remember, and it existed and it was set up uh, with a uh, more and more restrictive access. Here's the outer court that uh, virtually anyone could be at. And then you have the inner court, the tabernacle proper, uh, where only the priests could there be ministering. And then you had the most holy place, wherein the Ark of the Covenant was going to be. Uh, and there, only the high priest, and only once a year, could enter into that most holy place. Teaching us, right? Teaching us that the closer we get to God... Now, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And again, understand, please, that was an object lesson. Don't you people dare... I know you people don't, but there are people out there that do. Say that in the Old Testament, God lived in a box. You see? That is folly and it's blasphemous. God did not live in that little box. The reality of God was not in connection with that, but the box was an object lesson. It was a visible object lesson of God's presence, of God's manifest presence with His people. All right? And so here is this supreme object lesson of the presence of God. It is stuck in that dark place, in that most holy place, uh, behind the veil, only uh, the high priest, I say, only once a year and never without blood could enter into that place behind the veil. The closer you get to God, the greater the restrictions, you see. The, more, uh, the, the closer you get to that intimate and that uh, most manifest presence of God, the greater the degree of holiness. If the more fellowship, the more holiness is required. It's a beautiful picture. And it didn't take a lot of sense to see that. It didn't take a lot of sense to see that. That I can't go there. It requires blood. It requires holiness. It requires a very strict, uh, a very strict personal uh, life to get into that place where God is. It became a picture of that. That wasn't the reality. It wasn't the reality. Uh, but it was a picture of that. So to teach... Uh, God's holiness. And then, third purpose uh, is to show the meaning of worship. What does worship involve? All right? This is going to teach them uh, the meaning of worship. All right, so let me develop a few of these thoughts. First of all, the fellowship idea. Look at Exodus chapter 25. Somebody answer the phone. Uh, Exodus 25, uh, verse 8. The Lord is giving various instructions here uh, to Moses concerning these offerings to supply the various materials necessary. And I'll make a comment on that in due course. Verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all instruments thereof, so even so shall ye make it. God gave the pattern. God gave, them, God gave Moses the blueprints. We learn elsewhere that this was indeed a reflection, a blueprint, that which was to be uh, an example, an illustration of heaven uh, itself. But notice there the words, here is why God was doing this. In order that I 
may dwell among them. The tabernacle was going to be a visible, a visible manifestation, a visible concrete object lesson that God was dwelling with his people. And you look at the various names. This will be the last thing that we can address today, and we won't get very far here perhaps. But you look at the various names, the titles uh, that God used, that we see in the book of Exodus, that describe uh, what this tabernacle is. And the most of them are going to be emphasizing and highlighting this covenant fellowship that exists between God and his people. We call it the tabernacle. All right? That word that the authorized version translates as the tabernacle uh, very literally means the place of dwelling. See? It is the dwelling place. Here is where God is going to actively dwell with his people. It speaks to us very graphically and very vividly of the abiding presence of God with his people. And again, please, don't you dare think, don't you dare think that God's presence in the Old Testament was confined to that tent. It wasn't. It wasn't. That was not the reality of the presence of God with his people. I'll argue with anybody that wants to argue with me uh, that believers in the Old Testament were indwelt by the Spirit of God. I believe that. All right? I believe that believers in the Old Testament were indwelt by the Spirit of God, the same as you and I. Uh, but the, God was teaching them something of that spiritual reality. And the tabernacle was a vivid picture of God's active, constant, unceasing, abiding presence uh, with His people, His permanent residence. It's called the tent. Uh, very often it's called just the tent. Uh, the tent was a temporary dwelling. And I, I think we have here the fact that God is specifically identifying himself with his people. Later on, once they become established in the land, once they become fixed in the land, uh, ultimately, and uh, when, when was it? Kearns was just, was this Wednesday night or last Sunday night? When, when, David's preparation, bringing all this stuff in. Was that here that I heard that? Yeah. Say what? Well, whatever, I was here. Right? I, I, I got that vague memory here. All right? uh, but, but once they get into the land, all right, David's desire to build the, tap, the, the temple, Solomon comes and he builds the temple. Now once they're in the land, the land and they're a house for God. All right? They're living in houses, so now the house for God. He identifies himself specifically with his people. But in the wilderness, they were living in tents. They were wandering from here to there. And so God very vividly identifies himself with his people. Uh, here is a tent, uh, that which is not permanent in its structure. It was portable. They were portable. God's dwelling was portable. Where they went, he went. It became a very beautiful picture of that abiding fellowship of God. Called the tent of meeting. Called the tent of meeting. Uh, I, I, there's three times, three or four times, I preached a sermon once, I, I think, on this statement uh, that uh, recurs in Exodus where God promises that he will meet uh, with uh, his people. Exodus uh, 29, verses 42-43. Uh, uh, this shall be a continual burnt offering, so forth. Uh, here's the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Well, I will meet with you. Uh, to speak there unto thee, and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle to be sanctified by my glory. It's called the tent of meeting. It's the tent of meeting. That place of communion, 
that place where God would reveal Himself and make Himself known uh, unto His people. And closely related to that was the fact that it was called the tent of testimony. The tent of testimony. Uh, that testimony, uh, speaking of the self-attestation that God makes of Himself, it was a place of revelation. A place where God was going to make Himself known unto these people. Constant reminders that God cared for them, that God identified Himself uh, with them. And there's one other key term, the sanctuary, that I'll touch on a bit next week. So even the names, I'm saying that even the names that God uses to uh, describe this tent in the wilderness uh, was emphasizing uh, the very purpose of it to teach them very vividly, very graphically, something about the spiritual truth and the spiritual reality of his dwelling, his fellowship, his communion with his people. Now, the truth is the same for us. Right? The truth is the same for us. We don't need the object lesson anymore. We don't need the prophecy anymore because that's been fulfilled. We have uh, Christ coming. We have the Holy Spirit now explicitly defined for us. We don't need the object, but the truth is the same. You see, The truth is exactly the same. Uh, and I hope we can get some of this uh, from one of the most powerful parts of the message uh, of Exodus. All right, our time is gone. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we uh, consider these great issues and great truths from Your Word, that You would give us insight. We pray that the Spirit of God would teach us and show us these magnificent uh, and beautiful illustrations of Your concern and Your interest and Your presence uh, and your holiness, uh, and even the uh, means whereby all of that is accomplished through the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice, Christ ultimately the ideal Lamb of God. Lord, give us that sight, we pray. Make this a profitable study for us. We ask now that your blessing upon the worship hour to follow. Give us a sense of your presence. Open our ears, open our hearts uh, to receive the Word of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.